0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: The B-I-B-I-L-E, That's the book for me. The B-I-B-I-L-E, That's for me.
0: Trophy Toll Radio. We're on Sundays, 2 p.m., 4 p.m. Usually, and when I get started with you is the lessons for today. This is John MacArthur and the Ultimate Prophet, Priest, and King. And it's Christmas week uh, before Christmas, so let's say we'll have another show till after Christmas. So, I'll say Merry Christmas.
2: The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace To You. If you have never contacted Grace To You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It will show you the power you have as a believer to defeat worry and to experience profound peace in every circumstance. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's peace at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2021. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time. Here's grace to you Bible teacher, John MacArthur.
3: Take your Bible and turn to Luke 2 for a few moments. And in particular, verses 10 and 11. The angel of the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then, of course, the angelic hosts appear to declare glory to God in the highest. When we think about Christmas, we always wind up thinking about angels. They are sort of bit players in the cast of Christmas for most people. Uh, They appear kind of on the fringes of Christmas cards. They're lovable creatures, but they don't seem to play a very major role, at least not in the sentimental Christmas of most people. But that is not the case in the real story. Angels were the heavenly messengers sent to declare that the Savior and the Lord had arrived and that He was Christ. I want you to look at that word Christ in verse 11. That is not Jesus' last name Matthew reveals the same truth at the end of the genealogy of Jesus in his gospel. Matthew says, Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. His name was Jesus. His nature was Lord. But his title is Christ or Messiah. Mashiach in the Hebrew, Christos in the Greek. We see that word so often, but miss the significance of it unless we look more closely. Both the Old Testament word Messiah and the New Testament word Christos mean the anointed one, the anointed one. And it's drawn from the Old Testament where God anointed certain persons for special responsibility in His kingdom. The Old Testament promised a Savior, a Redeemer, a Deliverer, a Servant of the Lord, Messiah, the Anointed One. When Christ arrives... The anointed one has arrived. The Jews had waited long for that. Psalm 2, 2, promised that the Lord was going to send His anointed. Psalm 45, 7 says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. A prophecy of the coming of Messiah. Daniel nine, twenty-five and twenty-six identify the coming Redeemer, Savior, Messiah as Messiah the Prince. Whether you're using the word Messiah in the Old Testament, the Anointed One, or Christos in the New Testament, the Anointed One, it means the same thing. So his name is Jesus, his nature is Lord, and his title is is Christ, the Anointed One. Now, in the Old Testament, there were three particular people who were anointed for unique, elevated service in the kingdom. They were anointed with oil. Oil was poured on their heads as a symbol of their being set apart to God. First of all, it was the prophets. We see this, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 16, where Elijah is told to anoint his successor, the prophet Elisha. We see it in 1 Chronicles 16:22, where we read, "Do not touch my anointed, and do my prophets no harm." And that's repeated in Psalm 105. So, prophets we know were anointed in a unique way, set apart to speak for God second group that were anointed were priests. In Exodus 29, you have Aaron and those who were in the Aaronic priesthood instructed to be anointed. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 15, the sons of Aaron were to be anointed again as priests unto God. In Leviticus 8, you see the same thing with Aaron being anointed. This again sets them apart for special service. And the third Particular duty that received an anointing was that of the king, prophets, priests, and kings. First Samuel ten one, Saul, the first king, was anointed. First Samuel sixteen, David, was anointed. First Kings chapter one, Solomon, was anointed. And again, this symbolizes the outpouring of heavenly blessing on one who is called to a uniquely heavenly task. So the promise of God in the Old Testament was that there would come an anointed One, an anointed One, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Deliverer. But He would also be the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate King. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, we read, "'Behold My servant,' God is speaking, meaning Messiah, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon Him. God is identifying there His Messiah as His servant in whom He delights. In Isaiah 61, we read this similarly, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. The Anointed One is speaking there in Isaiah 61. The Messiah would be all three. According to Deuteronomy 18, He would be a prophet like Moses. According to Psalm 110, he would be a priest, and that's repeated again in Zechariah chapter 6. He would be a priest, a unique priest. According to Psalm 2, and then again in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he would be king. He would be the king in David's line. Psalm 2 says he would rule the nations of the world. So when you see the announcement of the angels that this is Christ, they are saying this is the promised anointed one who is the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. And of course, from the third chapter of Genesis, where God pronounces curses on man and woman and the serpent, we are told that there would come one who would crush the serpent's head. From Genesis 3 on, the anticipation builds as you go through the Old Testament, waiting for the arrival of this ultimate all glorious, all powerful, prophet, priest, and king, the anointed ones. This is God's plan and promise. It didn't happen. Centuries went by until, as Paul says in Galatians 4:4, 4, 4, the fullness of time came. And when the fullness of time came, He was born. And that's what lands you right in Luke 2. Verse 11, today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Messiah, the Anointed One, the Lord. If you drop down to verse 25 of Luke 2, after Jesus had been born, eight days passed, it was time for Him to be circumcised, to go to Jerusalem, present Him to the Lord, make an offering. And verse 25 says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's anointed one. And he came in the Spirit into the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then Simeon took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your slave to depart in peace, referring to himself, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the nations and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon, this old man, was told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Anointed One. He saw Him and said, I can now leave to my heavenly reward. This was the most monumental day in Israel's history since the promises of the Old Testament were finally wrapped up in the last of the 39 books written. They had waited even beyond that for hundreds of years. But now, in Bethlehem, the Messiah has arrived, the Anointed One. The prophet, priest, and king above all prophets, all priests, and all kings. And as we come into the Gospels, the story begins to unfold. Turn to John chapter 1, verse 35. And the next day Jesus was standing with two of His disciples, and He looked at Jesus as He walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus, and Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John, John the Baptist, speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. We have found the Messiah. The disciples knew he was the promised Messiah. He declared that himself. Look at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, he came to Nazareth, down in verse 16, entered the synagogue, stood up to read, took the book of the prophet Isaiah, which was handed to him, he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and that is what we just read in Isaiah 61, that's what Jesus found and read because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Anointed One has arrived. That's how the New Testament begins. In the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, we read Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman. The woman said to Him, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When that one comes, He will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. The New Testament Gospels are written to declare that the promised Messiah, prophet, priest, and king arrived, and He arrived as Jesus, the one who was also Lord. In John 11, verse 25, Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to Him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that You are the Christ, the Son of God even He who comes into the world. She is declaring that He is that promised Redeemer, Savior, Deliverer, Messiah, Prophet, Priest, and King. In the book of Acts, Peter stands up to preach that great sermon on the day of Pentecost, chapter 2, verse 30, and he declares that David was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, verse 30 of Acts two. And he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, the Christ, that he would neither be abandoned to Hades nor his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, "'The Lord said to my Lord, "'Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies "'a footstool for your feet. "'Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain "'that God has made Him,' that is Jesus, "'both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified.'" The message of the Lord Himself was that He is the Messiah and He has arrived to fulfill the promises This is affirmed by the apostles and the disciples. This becomes the subject of their preaching in the book of Acts. If you go down to chapter 3, verse 18, the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. They had not acknowledged that the Christ would suffer, the Messiah would suffer. So the apostles had to preach that it was promised by God that Messiah would suffer. comes to the eighth chapter, we meet Philip, and it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ, Messiah. The message of the, the apostles was that the Messiah, the promised one, had arrived. Chapter 9 Immediately, Paul the Apostle began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying He's the Son of God, verse 20. He kept increasing in strength, verse 22, and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Chapter 10, verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears Him and does what is right is welcome to Him, the word which He sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. The message of Peter as the message of Paul was always the reality of the arrival of the Messiah in the form of Jesus. Chapter 17, Paul in Thessalonica Went into the synagogue, verse 3, chapter 17, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So you get the picture. From the announcement of the angels that the Christ has arrived, to the testimony of Simeon, to the testimony of Jesus, to the testimony of the apostles, to the testimony of Paul, it was always that Jesus was the Christ. And as the Christ, He was the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. All three of those come together in the first chapter of Hebrews, so I want you to turn to that. It really is the text of the day. Hebrews chapter 1. It begins by describing the Lord Jesus Christ in these three marvelous anointed ways. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice the phrase. He was, starting in verse 4, much better than the angels. Superior to the angels who announced His arrival. In fact, He is the king of the angels. But chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 9, says that when He came into the world, He was for a little while made lower than the angels in order to suffer death, then be crowned with glory. So Hebrews chapter 1 is introducing us to the Anointed One, and He is introduced to us as, first of all, a prophet, and secondly, as a priest, and thirdly, as a king. He is the prophet who reveals God, He is the priest who reconciles to God, and He is the king who reigns with God. Let's look, first of all, at the prophet who reveals God. God, verse 1, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. Now we know that the natural man cannot understand the things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14, their foolishness to him. He is dead and blind. He is unable to discern. The God of this world has blinded his mind, lest the light of the gospel would shine unto Him. Paul says to the Corinthians, we do, not expect, we do not expect man to understand God or the gospel in a natural sense. We don't expect that any more than we expect the bug the boy puts in the bottle to understand the boy. God had to speak. We could not know Him if He did not speak. And He did. I love how this simply says, God has spoken. God has spoken. The true God, not an idol, not a dumb piece of wood or rock, not an impersonal cause, not an indifferent power, but God has spoken, which means He is a person. And He has spoken, and that is why the Bible is called the Word of God. In the Old Testament, we're reminded here that He spoke long ago, meaning in the Old Testament, to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Many portions, different books. Many ways, direct revelation, indirect revelation, inspired writing, visions, dreams, types, symbols, but always He spoke. And He spoke to the people through the prophets. The Old Testament was God speaking and men writing down what God said. Some of the Old Testament is history, some of it is poetry, some of it is law, some of it is prophecy, but all of it is God speaking. That is why it is called the Word of God. It was, in a sense, incomplete. The revelations that compose the 39 books of the Old Testament, separate books, are stretched over a millennium, written by many different authors. And it was progressive. It was incomplete, not error, but incompleteness marks the Old Testament. God was increasing our understanding as revelation continued. No prophet got the full revelation of God. Not until we see in verse 2 that God spoken to us in His Son. No prophet ever grasped the full truth of God. Only Jesus was the full truth revealed. He was no fragmentary revelation. He was no bits and pieces. He was not an incomplete revelation. In Him, God did not display some facets of Himself or some facets of His truth, but fully revealed Himself. No longer in diverse manners and diverse ways, but singularly through Christ. For a moment, look at John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, speaking of the Son of God. So we know the Word was God. Go down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full truth is revealed in Him. Verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. In Jesus, God is fully revealed. And the New Testament is written about this full revelation. The four gospels describe the arrival and the ministry of Jesus. The Book of Acts describes the apostolic preaching concerning Jesus. The epistles lay out the significance of His life and death and resurrection and implications in the world. And the New Testament culminates in the book of Revelation with His glorious return. The New Testament's all about Jesus Christ, who is the full revelation of God. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, says the Apostle Paul. God spoke in His Son. And by the way, the words of Jesus, they said they'd never heard a man speak like that man spoke. It was clear even to Nicodemus, the teacher in Israel, that Jesus was a teacher sent from God. He spoke for God, in fact, he says he only spoke what God wanted him to speak. In John chapter 5, you see how powerful his words are, the most powerful expression of his words since the creation, John 5.25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. His words are so powerful, they not only created the entire universe, they not only sustain that universe, but they're so powerful that He will raise all the dead in the end. Just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son to also have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life Those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. He speaks and the universe comes into existence. He speaks and the dead are taken out of their graves, given a body suited for heaven or a body suited for hell. That's how powerful His words are. He is the revelation of God in full. Now just notice that verse 2 begins by saying, "...in these last days." That's a familiar phrase to the Jews. It meant latter days, messianic days, the messianic age. He had arrived in God's time to be the Messiah. And He is the voice of God. Listen to John 14:24. He who does not love Me does not keep My words, and the word which you hear is not Mine but the Father's who sent Me. He's the perfect prophet. He speaks only the words that God ordained for him to speak. In Luke 13:33, he says, Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. So he recognizes himself as a prophet. In Luke 24:19, they said to him the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word, in the sight of God and all the people. He was a prophet because he spoke only what God wanted him to speak. He stated himself to be a prophet, and those who followed him declared that he was, in fact, a prophet. There had never been a prophet like him. His words were full of grace and truth and powerful enough to raise the dead. In the 17th uh, verse of Acts chapter 3, we read, the apostles say, I know you acted in ignorance as your rulers did, but the things which God announced beforehand the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore repent and return, that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive, and the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient times. He is the prophet's prophesied prophet. He is the one who fulfills God's messianic Picture. He is God's voice. You go to the Old Testament, you see this unfolding of Revelation. The Messiah, bits and pieces unfold. To Abraham, we find the nation of Messiah. In Jacob, we find the tribe of Messiah. In David and Isaiah, we find the family of Messiah. In Micah, we find the town of Messiah. In Daniel, we find the time of Messiah. In Malachi, we find the forerunner of Messiah. Again in Isaiah, we find the death and resurrection of Messiah. But each writer only knew in part. And Peter says they looked at what they wrote to see who this really would be. But when Christ arrived, He is the complete, full revelation of God. Not in drifting hues and separated color, but pure divine light. So when the angels said, Christ has been born, this is exactly what they were referring to. And the writer of Hebrews tells us, this one speaks for God. He speaks for God. He wants you to understand that even in a deeper way and so Listen to what the writer says. He's going to define Christ in some magnificent terms. He is the Son of God, verse 2. He is the heir of all things. He is the one who made the world. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. Again, he comes back to this. What he's trying to show us is that He is the ultimate prophet No prophet has ever had words that are as powerful as His. If you ask, Who is Jesus Christ? Here is your answer. He is the eternal Son of God, but not just that. He is the heir of all things. He is the heir of all things. He possesses the right to absolutely everything. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 5, you see this illustrated when the Lamb of God comes out of the throne in chapter 5 and picks up the sealed book, which is the title deed to the universe. Verse 6, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and elders a Lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, or sevenfold spirits sent out into all the earth, came and took the book out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. And then all of heaven bows down to worship Him as He unrolls the title deed to the universe and begins to take it back from the usurper. He is the rightful heir to everything that God possesses. Yes, for a while He was lower than the angels, but He is much better than the angels. He is the King of angels. He is the one who will inherit everything. He inherits it. Because He created it. Go back to verse 2 again. Through whom also He made the world. Through the agency of the Son, God the Father created. Everything was made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John 1.3. Colossians 1.16 says He created everything. Absolutely everything. He created it all by word. He spoke it into existence. He speaks for God and he speaks with such power he could create the universe in six days. And as we saw in John 5, he can raise the dead and bring them to a final form suited for heaven and suited for hell by the word of his mouth. When it says there, just as a note, by whom he made the world, it's actually the term Ionis, not cosmos, which speaks of the material world, but. Made the ages. He is the author of all that exists in history. He is the author not just of the material world, the immaterial world as well, and how it all interacts. He is the creator of the ages and all that they embody. As such, also, verse 3 says, He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the heir of all, He's the creator of all, because He is the light of of all when it says he is the radiance it's the word brightness actually he is the shining forth of God's glory 2 Corinthians 4 says that we see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus just as the radiance of the sun reaches the earth and lights and warms gives life and growth so Christ is the glorious light of God shining into the hearts of men The brightness of the sun is not the sun, but the brightness of the sun draws its energy from the sun. The brightness of the sun is as old as the sun. Never was the sun without its brightness. The brightness cannot be separated from the sun, and yet the brightness of the sun is not the sun, and so it is with the Son of God. He is not the Father, but He is indistinguishable from the Father as the Light of the sun is indistinguishable from the sun itself. He says in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. It's amazing how the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that this is one who is fully equipped to speak for God because He is the heir of all things. He is the creator of all things. He is the very radiance of the essential nature of God in all His glory. In fact, he goes a step further and says, and he is the exact representation of his nature. Precisely, exact. It's a classical word that means just essentially what it's been translated to mean. He is a precise copy. He is the authorized exact duplication of God in nature, substance, and essence. He is the icon of God. Colossians 2, nine in Him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. Not only that, He is the ruler of all. He upholds all things by the word of His power. This is speaking about His power to sustain everything that exists. Everything in the universe has to be held together, and it is held together by the word of His power. Notice that, the word of His power. He speaks and the universe is created. He speaks again constantly, continually, and the universe is sustained until its determined end has arrived. If He has this much power to speak the universe into existence, to uphold the universe until time for it to be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth, if He is in fact the heir of all that God possesses, if he is by nature God himself, if he is the exact representation of God, then we can say there is no other who could so speak for God as this one. As this one. He directs all the movements of the ages by the word of his power or the power of his word. So here the writer of Hebrews is introducing us to one unlike any other one through whom God has spoken in a way that He never spoke before, not in bits and pieces, not in fragments, not in separated books, not in an incomplete way, not in an accumulated way, short of the full revelation. No, this one is the full revelation of God. He is the promised, anointed prophet. And secondly, He is... Not only the prophet who reveals God, but he is the priest who reconciles to God. Go back to verse 3. When he had made purification of sins, this introduces us to his priestly work. That's what priests did. They went before God in the prescribed way to offer the necessary sacrifice that God required. To pay for the sins of the people. That's what Jesus did. He offered the only sacrifice that could take away sin. There was no priest like Him. Every priest would go back every day and do what he did in the morning again at night and again the next day and the next day and the next day. There was never any end to it. But the, the, the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand there's never been a priest like this one Chapter 2, verse 17, He became a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation and satisfaction. He offered a sacrifice that satisfied God. No priest ever did that. Chapter 4, verse 14, We have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we do not have a great a great high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things yet we are as we are, but without sin. So let us draw near to him. He is a priest like no other priest. Chapter five, verse five. So also Christ, there he is Messiah, did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, Psalm two. Just as He also in another passage says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of His flesh He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save Him from death and was heard because of His piety. Verse 9 says, Having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. I can't leave that theme without looking at chapter 9 of Hebrews. When Christ, Messiah, appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who had been defiled could sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh in a temporal way or temporary way, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Thus He is the mediator of a better covenant in which redemption is accomplished. The end of verse 26, He manifested himself to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's not just the priest, but he is the priest who offered himself as the sacrifice. To the Jews, the cross was a stumbling block, and that's why they had to preach. The apostles did that the Christ, the Messiah, must needs have suffered, but he came to be the priest, to offer the ultimate sacrifice and to be that sacrifice. Peter says we're redeemed not with corruptible things like silver and gold, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb without blemish and without spot. He came to offer Himself to take away our sins. Go down to chapter 2, verse 9. He was made a little lower than the angels that He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for Him for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. He was the perfect priest, sympathetic. He was the perfect sacrifice. He was man, and He substituted for man. He was God and had the power to defeat death. The perfect prophet who speaks for God because He is God, who has creative power beyond comprehension, and whatever He speaks, He speaks with that power. He is the prophet, the voice of God, who reveals God to us. He is the priest, whose intercession reconciles us to God, but He is not just the priest, He is the sacrifice as well. And thirdly, in this Opening few verses, we meet Him as the King. The end of verse 3, when He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Priests never sat down. They never stopped offering sacrifices. It was impossible for them to sit down. Sacrifices in the morning, sacrifices in the afternoon, day after day after day, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, The priest never sat down because his work was never finished. But Jesus sat down because He was not just the priest. He was a king. He sat down at the right hand, the power side of the majesty on high. He took His rightful place. As the book of Revelation says, He became King of kings and Lord of lords. And from that moment when He ascended into heaven after He had accomplished His priestly work, He reigns as the eternal King. So, the writer of Hebrews introduces us again to the Christ, the prophet who speaks for God, reveals God, the priest who reconciles us to God, and the King who reigns with God. The evidence of his sovereign royalty is verse 4. Having become as much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he, God, ever say, You're my son, today I have begotten you? And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. I never said that to an angel. And When he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now that takes us back to where we started. Go back to Luke chapter 2. He arrives as the anointed prophet, priest, and king. The writer of Hebrews says he's much better than the angels, and the angels acknowledge him as their king, and that's exactly what they do when the angel of the Lord appears and says, today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. The angels don't need a prophet. The angels don't need a priest. The angels do have a king. He has always been their king. Jesus, King of angels, heaven's light. Charles Wesley understood that when he wrote, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the New Born King. The angels, the holy angels have always worshipped Him, and they worship Him as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, God's promised anointed Redeemer. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we understand all that our feeble minds can grasp of the wonder and the glory of the Son of God, we long for that day when we will gather with the saints and angels in His presence and see the fullness of His glory. For He is the light of heaven. Well, Lord, we thank You that You have shown us in Scripture that none other than Jesus is your anointed prophet who speaks for you because he is one with you in nature and will. He is the priest that you required to offer the sacrifice of himself as a sufficient propitiation for sin. And he is the king whose priestly work was validated by the resurrection and by seating him at Your right hand on that throne from which He rules as King of kings. We thank You for that announcement that day. We thank You for the reality that Christ is exactly who the angels said He was. He is Jesus, who is Christ, the Anointed One, the Lord. Help us not to... Misunderstand any of the glory that belongs to Him so that we can join the heavenly host and say He's not just the King of angels, He's, he's our King. We, we needed a prophet. We desperately needed a priest. And we now have a King who loves us and shares the fullness of his eternal inheritance with us forever. This is the one who was born in Bethlehem.
2: You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons, and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org.
1: Everybody knew, sharper than a tack on the end of a ginsu. She graduated number one and had to give a speech. What would she say? What would she teach? She knew about God and this was a chance. She could bust the move or be afraid to do the dance. She told the truth and everybody heard. She got brave because she understood. If you want to be-
4: On race, this is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis, Ark Encounter, and the Creation Museum. Over the past months, politicians, activists, and even Christians have suggested a variety of solutions to the race problems in the United States. Some have advocated violence, reparations, removing historic symbols, or other solutions. But the only true lasting solution is the history in God's word, which builds a truly biblical worldview and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we'll look at all this week. You know, Genesis teaches that God created just two people in the beginning. They were made in God's very image. And scripture is clear. Everyone today is their descendant. This means there's only one race, the human race, and every person is made in God's image.
5: Discover Grace Relations on Answers.tv, our new video streaming platform. Enjoy hundreds of videos, science and nature programs, conferences and more at Answers.tv.
4: Different races? No. This is Ken Ham, co-author of the powerful book against racism called One Race, One Blood. Yesterday we learned everyone is descended from the first two people God created. Therefore there's only one race, the human race. But if we're all one race, why are there different people groups around the world? Where'd they come from? Well the Bible gives us the answer. After the global flood, the human population gathered together in rebellion against God. Now God confused their languages, forcing them to spread out and fill the earth. And as they moved around the world, each group took unique combinations of genetic information with them. And soon, well, different people groups and cultures arose. But everyone traces their ancestry back to Noah, and then back to Adam and Eve.
5: Discover more answers to racism when you go to our website, AnswersRadio.com. Relevant answers from the Bible and science are found right there, AnswersRadio.com.
4: yellow, black, and white. This is Ken Ham, encouraging all churches to start their thinking with God's Word. We've all heard the children's chorus that says we're red and yellow, black and white. But this week, we've learned we're all one race. And there aren't red, yellow, black and white races. There's only one race. And we could say it's a brown race. We all have a brownish pigment called melanin, the main pigment involved in skin shade. And note I said skin shade, not color. We're all the same basic color, brown, just different shades. To put it simply, a lot of melanin produces a dark brown shade. A little bit of melanin produces a light brown shade. And there's all kinds of shades in between. It's just part of the diversity God put into the one humankind.
5: Discover more answers to questions regarding race and racism when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. Be equipped to respond biblically to this vital issue at AnswersRadio.com.
6: Yeah, a mighty.
4: God, he looks at the heart. This is Ken Ham inviting you to visit the full-size Noah's Ark attraction in northern Kentucky. In 1 Samuel, the prophet anoints the next king of Israel. He thinks it'll be David's brother based on external appearance. But God tells him not to look on the outward appearance for God looks at the heart. In our culture, we make a big deal about outward appearance, whether it's weight, attractiveness or the shade of our skin. But these differences are minor for example, the genetic difference between any two people groups is only a fraction of 1% of our DNA. It's an incredibly small difference, and yet people focus heavily on it. Let's not be like the world, obsessing over minor outward differences. Let's look at the heart the way God does.
5: Discover more biblical truth applied to the issues of our day at AnswersRadio.com and learn about our exciting new video streaming platform when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
7: All right. the image of the beautiful most high God told them be fruitful and multiply everything's yours but that tree do not try because in the day you eat it you're surely going to die I'm sure you know the rest yes they failed the test and ever since then the world has been a big mess so as we read the Bible it's important that we see this there's only one hero and his name is Jesus Today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display, and it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Use crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mashed up the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So, as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this there's only one hero, and his name is Jesus.
4: What's the answer to racism? This is Ken Ham, offering you a free seven-day trial of the streaming service, Answers.tv. The Bible teaches we're all one race but we're all one sinful race. Because we're all descended from Adam, we're all sinners. That's why racism has existed in all cultures all throughout history. The issue isn't skin, it's sin. That's why the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus died on the cross to solve our biggest problem, the sin that separates us from God. You know, when you're saved, we're given a new heart that loves God and his spirit to help us love and forgive others, no matter who they are or what they've done. We forgive others as Christ has forgiven us, We don't need reparations. Christ paid for our sin on the cross.
5: We don't need race relations. We need grace relations. Get answers that start with God's Word on Answers.tv. Discover our video streaming platform for the whole family at Answers.tv.
6: What is prayer?
1: Prayer is offering.
6: now we can pray to our father in heaven above we can come to our god at any time of the day and he'll receive us so great his love he wants us to talk to him with a sincere heart and we
8: Someone, can you name one of the Ten Commandments? This is likely the one they'll give you. Even unbelievers know, Thou shalt not murder. So, what is murder? It seems like a simple question with a simple answer Do not kill anyone for any reason ever. But just before God said, Do not kill, He had Israel fight the Amalekites. After giving them the law again, He sent Israel into the Promised Land to kill the Canaanites. There are occasions when death is just if a man kills an intruder to defend life or property, if a soldier or police officer has to put someone down, if the state executes a criminal for crimes deserving of the death penalty. These are examples of justice according to the Bible. There is no blood guilt on those who do justice. Therefore, not all killing is murder. So what is being forbidden by the Sixth Commandment? The Sixth Commandment absolutely forbids the taking of life, whether your own or your neighbors, unjustly. In God's eyes, killing your neighbor is murder, suicide is murder, abortion is murder, but capital punishment is not inherently murder, nor is self-defense. How do you keep the sixth commandment? By not killing anyone, right? Well, Jesus said if you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. You keep the sixth commandment by loving one another, for love is the fulfilling of the law. The righteous shall live by faith in Jesus Christ when we understand the text.
0: That was when we understand the text. known as what W W U T T, and just find it on their website W W U T T dot com. But that one I got from their YouTube channel W W U T T, and it stands for when we understand the text. And next, one I'm gonna do for you. the play, this is from Wretched.
9: Illustrations. If you don't like the first one, hang in there for the second one. Be patient with me. Let's just say: scenario one, we study our Bibles and we conclude the way that God prefers we worship, the way that God demands we praise Him, is four-part harmony with hymnals written by a bunch of dead guys with a pipe organ and the choir up in a loft. And no worship leader in the front. That's what we've determined. Question, are you willing to set aside your pragmatic preference, a worship style that pleases you for a worship style that pleases God if you conclude that's the way God wants it and I'm going to do it whether I like it or not? Second scenario, we study our Bible with our eyes, determined to discover how does God want to be worshipped. Lo and behold, he doesn't like a pipe organ. He doesn't like old, stodgy hymns written by dead guys. He likes contemporary worship music with multiple guitars, a drum kit, and a worship leader with lights dimmed, fog machine, and a lot of repetition. Are you willing to set aside your pipe organ preferences to worship the way that God wants. Mm -hmm. If we are not willing to set aside our preference for doing worship that makes me feel good or our pragmatic desire to create worship that attracts unbelievers and potentially evangelizes them, then I, you, are being just like us. You and I have to set our preferences aside, do worship the way that God wants, and guess what? Here's the kicker. You will have joy. It's the only formula that can bring you joy, because if your desire is to do worship that pleases you, you won't be pleased. You won't be satisfied. You will only have joy when we worship the way that God desires to be worshiped, whether we like it or not, because our desire and worship is God. God.
1: Our goal is God. period, full stop. Our goal is God. Our goal is communion with God our Our, our goal in worship is not lost people that that's not our goal in worship. Our goal in worship is God. Do we want to evangelize? Amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord all day, every day, twice on Sunday? Yes, we do. But our goal in worship is God.
9: So, how and why do you worship God?
0: That was from Richard and... You can find out on um, wretched.org, and also on the YouTube page as wretched, and spelled W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D, and here's another one from Wretched.
9: How do I explain that the Bible is not a tool to control the masses? Prove it! That's the response that I would start with if somebody accuses the Bible of being a book that was contrived and used by wicked people, presumably, to reach their nefarious ends. I would simply ask for the proof. In order to prove that statement that the Bible is just a book that was concocted by people to control other human beings, You would have to know their hearts. Do we have that recorded any place? Do we know the motives of people who have used the book to suppress the masses? It is simply an unprovable statement, but I would respond secondly, and let's say they did. Maybe some people have used the Bible to scare people. Hey, if you don't do what I say, this book says you're going to hell. Have some people done that? I suspect there have been some people, but what does that do to the veracity of Scripture? Absolutely nothing. It has no bearing, no effect on whether the Bible is
6: true.
9: We do not judge a book by how somebody reads it, where they place it on their bookshelf, what they do with it, whether they recycle it or not. Those things issues have no bearing on what the book is i would encourage this accuser to dive into its pages and judge the book based on itself that is the answer to so many attacks on scripture ultimately we want them to read it that is the best encouragement that we can give to somebody yes always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within you yes know your apologetics yes be prepared to defend the veracity of scripture yes understand textual criticism but might i suggest we actually take the sword out of its sheath rather than just defending the weapon employ it encourage the accuser read it for yourself and what you are going to discover is this bible demonstrates itself to be supernatural and it has shown itself to be reliable it is filled with prophetic accuracy it has eyewitness accounts of supernatural events the chief of which is jesus rising from the dead furthermore you have the testimony of two thousand years lives changed this book does something and furthermore there has been no book that has more influenced western civilization than the bible itself it is unmistakable even jordan peterson acknowledges that those are the proofs that we can share with people that the bible is reliable but the best thing we can do for somebody is open it up and have them read it
3: Everybody has known for a long time The
9: training indigenous
0: That was once again from Wretched And Wretched is host Todd Friel And you can view their website Wretched.org W-I-T-C-H-E-D.org And then also Find their videos on YouTube On the website they have a Radio show and a TV show So check that out And thanks for listening to me Most control it here on Troop Patrol Radio I'm gonna play a song this is called Immutable by Mm Shadow.
1: Beautiful, beautiful You never change, never change above
6: My ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies, still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be, surely it's because of the cross, where Jesus paid the full penalty, and bore the burden of sin's great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God, I look to Christ and I trust He died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished, that I cannot change, and with this knowledge I am free. But ever evidence, grace, it will remain, because of what happened on Calvary. on Calvary. As long ago as that was.
1: Beautiful, beautiful. You never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. The beautiful, beautiful. You never change, never change.
10: Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook Like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com, that is, T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M, truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at TruthBeToldRadio.blogspot.com. That's TruthBeToldRadio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth. The letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's s m i l e s a n d s t u f f dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
0: That's all we have for Truth Patrol Radio. We're going to go out with Yancy and Friends and the VI really. Bye for now.